0: You're listening to It Simply Isn't Done, a podcast of Portage Chapel Hill.
1: I am Barry Petrucci.
0: I'm Jess Davenport.
1: And together we are the The Irreverent Reverends. Reverends.
0: It Simply Isn't Done is a podcast both about the state of the church, um, because the church is not done and God is still working with us, and about some of the things we do around here, which we frequently hear are things that are simply not done.
1: Correct. Correct.
0: And we're glad you're here with us for the ride.
1: Well, here we are for another episode of It Simply Isn't Done. This time we are running a series called...
0: I've Been Meaning to Ask.
1: (laughs) I have been meaning to ask. And this was week two
0: Week two of that series, first week centered on the question, where are you from? And this week's question is, where does it hurt? Hurt.
1: Where does it hurt?
0: Hmm. The scripture is from 1 Samuel, and you'll hear that read. And if you've already listened to the scripture and the message, you are welcome to check the show notes for our reflection. Mm -hmm.
2: Good morning. Good morning. Scriptures this morning are from um, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1-18. through 18. Now there are a certain man from Rah- Ratham, a Zephite, from the highlands of Ephraim, whose name was Alcanna. He was from the tribe of Ephraim, and he was the son of Jehorabim, and Eliah, son of Tohu, and Zaph. Elkanah had two wives, one named Hannah and the other named Penhannah. Penhannah had children, but Hannah did not. Every year this man would leave the town to worship and sacrifice sacrifice to the Lord of heavenly forces in Shiloh. Where Eli's two sons, Hophna and Pinhas, were the Lord's priests. Whenever he sacrificed, Elkanah would give parts of the sacrifice to his wife Peninnah, and to all of her sons and daughters, but he would give only one portion of it to Hannah, though he loved her because the Lord had kept her from conceiving, and because of the Lord, because the Lord had kept her. From conceiving, her rival would make fun of her mercilessly, just, just to just bother her, so that so that is what took place year after year. Whenever Hannah went to the Lord's house, Pen Hannah would make fun of her. Then she would say, then she would cry and wouldn't eat anything. Hannah, why are you crying? Her husband El would say to her. Why don't you eat? Why are you so sad? Aren't I worth more to you than ten sons?" One time, after eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah got up and presented herself before the Lord. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting at the door in a chair by the door of the Lord's temple. Hannah was very upset and couldn't stop crying, so she prayed to the Lord. Then she made this promise, Lord of heavenly forces, just look at your servant's pain and remember her. Don't forget, to, don't forget your servant. Give her a boy. Then I will give him to the Lord for his entire life. No razor will ever touch his head. As she kept praying before the Lord, Eli washed her mouth. Now Hannah was praying in her heart, but her lips were moving and her voice was silent. So Eli thought she was drunk. How long will you act like a like a drunk? Sober up, Eli told her. No, sir, Hannah replied. I'm just a very sad woman. I haven't had any wine or beer, but I've been pouring out my heart to the Lord. Don't think your servant is some good for nothing woman. This whole time I have been praying out of my great worry and trouble. Eli responded. Then go in peace, and may the Lord of Israel give you what you have asked for, for from him. Please think well of me, your servant, Hannah said. Then the woman went on her way, ate some food, and wasn't sad any longer. A word, The word of God that is still speaking. Thanks be to God.
1: Thanks, Mike. Hard names in that story. Pray with me. May these words, O God, become your word in the hearing of your people by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Well... Pardon me while I throw my earbuds over my shoulder. It's good to be back with you, back in the pulpit, back in the pulpit again. (laughs) So, um, I've been gone eight weeks. August 20th to October 15th was supposed to be the great 39th year of ministry renewal leave, the first renewal leave I've ever taken, no sabbatical, lots of planning had been done. You know how that goes, you do lots of planning, all the planning and then the shifting and the planning, the rethinking, the getting comfortable with it all, and then you go The first four weeks or so would include time for Lisa and me to travel east. We'd spend time with daughter, Bree, and son-in-law, Nick, out in the Boston area. We would see Bruce Springsteen in concert at Foxborough outside of Boston. We would visit friends. We'd, We'd chill out. We'd see sights, have conversations. We would renew You know how that goes. It was all perfect in our heads. When there is hurt in the eldest of the family, there is hurt. Uh, these These are going funny, there we go. There was hurting going on in Lisa's family. Her dad, Willie, at 100 years old, in stellar health. He was still mowing his lawn. He was still getting down under his car, working on the brakes. Well, Willie got pneumonia. And then he fell, and he broke his back, and the decision was made, his decision was made, for hospice relationship to begin, and Lisa was needed, and I wanted to be supportive, and so plans pivoted. You know how that goes. When there's hurt in the eldest of the family, there is hurt everywhere, and it's not always so simple to To uh, nail down and work responses to bring comfort even to make sure no further harm is done this is hard stuff you all have similar experiences to that right the hundred-year-old who never complained about anything was screaming in anguish and wanting it all just to be over (laughs) care comfort healing of the soul doing no further harm, all far more important than renewal for me. As I've commonly mused around here, we plan and God laughs. In other words, stuff happens to move our plans. Stuff happens to force a pivot. And so we pivoted for those first four weeks. But fear not, there was a second half. The second half was... um, was for me to take time alone, driving north in my car up to to Tuquamanon Falls, pictured rocks, and then drive out on US2 all the way out to Vancouver, British Columbia, where I was going to stay in a retreat center for six days, finish up writing, and then haul back here so I could, you know, get back in time to keep my covenant with my co-pastor. It all it all had been planned, and it was all worked out perfectly. And, I, and, it, and it was all going great. I learned to put up my little tent. I learned to sort of like it. <laughs> it was weird. Some of the campgrounds where people had $300, you know, motorhomes, they pull in next to your one-person tent. A little strange. I had six really great nights. I did a lot of hiking, writing, picture-taking. On the sixth night, at about 1:15 in the morning, I woke in a cold sweat. Heart rate was 168. I was in AFib. I've had AFib a long time, and I'm one of those that can feel it. I know when it's happening. It was not settling back. It was not going back into sinus. So I drove myself about 20 miles to the nearest hospital with an ER. I uh, pulled in, and there's like no one there. This is an empty ER. But there were doctors, uh, and there was someone that there was, which <laughs> is all I needed. And they said something like, Where does it hurt? And I told them that I was an AFib. And they said, Well, you think so. But they had to hook me up, and I was an AFib. A couple of IVs, they got my heart into sinus rhythm. And from blood tests, they discovered that um, I had a really, really overactive thyroid. And the doc strongly suggested that I not do this thing that I was planning on doing, that I not continue camping on my own, driving all the way out to Vancouver, British Columbia, until I got further medical attention. So I spent two days gently driving there from the border of Wisconsin and Minnesota back home to arrange follow-up medical appointments. So that I don't leave you in suspense, Uh, this overactive thyroid was confirmed as something called Graves' disease, and it looks like it's gonna be controllable by a little tiny pill each morning. Thanks be to God, amen. Where does it hurt? I shared this morning because I really get tired of telling the story. And everybody wants to know how fabulous my renewal leave was. So now you know. Where does it hurt? There are life situations most of us at one time or another have to deal with for ourselves, for our family members, for our friends. Where does it hurt? In the second week of our short series, I've been meaning to ask a question that's really rooted in parental care, right? The little kids were trying to figure out, where does it hurt? What do you need? But it's really a bigger, lifelong question. Where, Where does it hurt? Put some words to it. Remember back in 2015, there were the bombings in Paris? Right after that, when the world was reeling with shock, Somali-born British poet laureate, War Sunshire, wrote a poem that went viral, asking us the question, where does it hurt? She wrote, they set my aunt's house on fire. I cried the way women on TV do, folding at the middle like a five-pound note. I called the boy who used to love me. <clears throat> I tried to okay my voice. I said, "Hello." And he said, Warson, what's wrong? What's happened? I've been praying. And these are what my prayers look like. Dear God, dear God, I come from I come from two countries. One is thirsty. the other is on fire. Both need. Water. Later that na- night, I held an atlas in my lap, ran my fingers across the whole world, and whispered, where does it hurt? It answered, everywhere. 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 It feels like that. It feels like that, right? Like it hurts everywhere. In the vast propensity for harm in this world, it hurts everywhere, and all the renewal plans have been immediately altered everywhere. Our text this morning, our scripture reading, takes the hurt of the world and manifests it in one woman, Hannah, who has been raised in the surety of the plan that she would marry and she would have children She would be blessed among women. And our text dumps the pain of the failure of that plan at the doorway of humanity and makes it our story. It begins the story as though the story is really the husband's story. Elkanah has two wives, Hannah and Penina. Penina had children. Hannah did not. Whenever Elkanah went to sacrifice before God, he would divide parts and give them to Penina and parts to her kids, but would only give one part to Hannah. Though he loved her, he would only give her one part because the Lord kept her from conceiving. Ah, there it is. The Lord kept her from conceiving. Penina mocked Hannah mercilessly, and Hannah was miserably sad and would not eat. Elkanah would say, Why don't you eat? Why are you sad? Hey, am I not worth more to you than ten sons? Oy, the answer is no. Where does it hurt? Here. Hannah goes to the temple and makes a deal with God and she conceives and gives the child into the care of the aged priest, Eli. That the story of Hannah is the story of so, so many of us who have struggled with fertility, who have miscarried, who have borne the unrelenting pain of the loss of a child, who know the reality of, but this is not the way it was supposed to be, of surely this. This is not God's almighty plan. So many of us know what it is to hold the guilt of loss and the guilt of understanding our response of pain to somehow be unfaith, to be unfaithful, to be doubtful, to not trust in God. There's more in the text, and there's more to the story. It's all about the call of Samuel. But for us right now, the critical word is about how we relate to one another in care and compassion, doing no harm, and setting space for healing. Where does it hurt? It's a question of abiding concern. It's not an inquiry for the purpose of gossip. I do not need to know where it hurts for any other reason than to listen further for ways I might not be a part of harm and even ways I might be a part of healing. As Brene Brown was saying in the film, this is a case where there really is a binary without any any spaces of nuance. We are in faith community of either harming or healing there is no neutrality because neutrality manifests it is felt it's experienced as passive harm where does it hurt is not a question of curiosity the answer to which we get to share with others it is a question to deepen our opportunities to respond in ways decided and driven by the one who is hurting we don't get to make guesses about it look we know when we're hurting we want to have agency about how we deal with that hurt. When we use the answer to any other way, we, in any, when we use the answer to the question in any other way, we invest in religious harm. It is one of the risks of things like the church prayer chain. Misuse breaks trust and builds harm upon harm. So the hurting must always have agency, must be the ones to volunteer their pain. They must be the ones to ask for prayer, lest the prayer devolve into harmful gossip. Pastor... Kaylee Elliott is at First Presbyterian Church in Bend, Oregon. And when she was preaching on this topic, she talked about a book called What Happened to You, in which neuroscientist Bruce Sperry writes, I'm often asked about troubling behaviors, like why is that child acting like a baby? Can he act his own age? Or how can that mother stand by and watch her boyfriend beat her child? Why would someone ever abuse a child? What is wrong with that child? What is wrong with that mother? What is wrong with that boyfriend? And he writes, over the years, I found that seemingly senseless behavior really does make sense. Once you look at what's behind it, something happened to them that influenced how the brain works. So I no longer ask, what's wrong with you? Instead, I ask, what happened to you? What happened to you? It's another way of asking, where does it hurt? Tell me, tell me your story. Where it hurts is physical. Where it hurts is psycho-emotional. It is spiritual. We know that the chasms of political divides around the world right now and in our own country have only grown wider and wider. And the phrase often reaches our very human lips, what is wrong with that person? Flaw of psyche, flaw of character, both. As Jess mentioned last week, sometimes the beginning of reaching across the divide is not an inquiry such as what's your problem," that, that really, rarely works very well. But where are you from? Do you have family around here? Is everything OK? Maybe where does it hurt? Because we are all from some place, all have family, and if honest, all hurt, all have had something occur that puts us where and how we are. It is, after all, the makeup of our very human stories. And so Hannah sits at the temple and cries and mutters, and old priest Eli is sure she's a drunkard. I love that scene. But no, she's not a drunkard, she is bargaining with God. And Eli basically says, oh, well then, carry on, good luck with that, or in Hebrew, blessings to you. What amazing, what amazing healing might it have been had a woman without harm or judgment came and sat down alongside Hannah just to be present, maybe to whisper, where does it hurt? Just someone to be present, someone with whom Hannah could share the story. Understand this is not a simple formula from a naive male pastor without personal knowledge of female infertility. I'm not just handing this over to you as a nifty way to respond to all hurts others might carry. Yet I'm suggesting that the simple question where does it hurt or some variation just creates space within each of us to understand and care for the other in some way, in a new way. Creating a kind of open door perhaps. Still the other has agency. So we may ask all the right questions and the conversation may not go as we well-intentioned Christian types might hope. See, hurt people hurt people because the quickest way to offload some of our pain is to find someone else to blame someone else to dump on and so our working to help does not automatically say that the other person is going to trust us and that's okay we can still sit and be present it's not it is about hurt Fear of shedding hurt, getting used to wearing grief. It's about taking the willingness to sit with the other, to abide, to be patient, to know it is not about us as caring presence. It's not about us as caregiver. It is about the other as care receiver. And we know that, right? Because we have been in the place of lonely desperation, the place of deep hurt. Grief and other places of seemingly unrelenting hurt simply Simply don't make doesn't make sense. It doesn't spill forth from us in a neat, ordered, linear, cohesive kind of way. It spills forth from us like emotional vomit. And it has to come, but it comes on its own time. It is sobbing into your pillow, and in the next moment, finding you have no more tears to cry. It is going out for wild nights with friends in an attempt to forget. And it is in staying home, writing dark poetry so you will always remember. It is keeping yourself maniacally busy so as not to think or feel. It's pulling the covers back over your head to sleep the days away. Grief is red-hot anger at yourself, at the world, at the other. It is anger at God. And it is a desperate plea to yourself, the world, and the other, and to God to be there. And so we ask, where does it hurt? God, it hurts everywhere. And then right there, right in the middle of pouring out pain, Hannah stops as if a memory strikes her off balance, and she remembers, and she's able to eat and move on. She remembers. She remembers how God has been faithful to her, how God has been faithful to her people, and how God's love for them has not ultimately failed them. Hannah is not done. She remembers. The story is not complete in her barrenness, nor are are they complete in her pregnancy or in bringing Samuel into the world. None of these are her entirety. The story we are continually meaning to ask about is not complete in any given moment because God's compassions do not fail us in any singular moment. They are made known in those who dare to abide with us and dare to inquire, where does it hurt? Where does it hurt? Amen. Amen welcome back
0: Barry what did you want us to take away from your message
1: uh, I think a few things I wanted us to take away um, one the reality that we all hurt and that um, if we're honest with ourselves and maybe honest with others there are ways in which people can be helpful and decidedly ways in which people can be unhelpful in, uh, in responding to our hurt. And the simple question, where does it hurt, is one that we we begin with kids. I mean, from the time that where they're crying and we can't quite figure out whether it's because they're hungry or because they pooped their pants or, or whatever it is, uh, and we're trying to get information. And that, that sense of where does it hurt, we lose when we become adults because we don't want to meddle or we don't really want to respond.
0: When you mentioned that, I was thinking about how when Tori and I were new to parenting, uh, knowing that not everyone kind of shares this experience, but your kid will cry a lot and you'll learn very quickly how uncomfortable you are with crying. And I, like like many came from a background where like crying was not acceptable. It was like, okay, pipe down. All right. It's not, you know, it's not that big a deal, <laughs> particularly with toddlers that are frankly unreasonable. Um, I, we really quickly move to, um, invalidate sure. where it hurts because it seems irrational. And we start doing that from the time as humans, when we're very small, and it's hard to learn to lean into the discomfort of crying, especially when that is, you know, one of the first ways we learn to communicate our needs. And, you know, we're always we're sh- 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 we're shushed away from the crying um, and we learn, you know, very quickly it's not OK to express your needs in those ways. So that's interestingly, that's like my brain went there first with, wow, we're really bad (laughs) at asking where it hurts because we're not comfortable with the fact that other people hurt, especially the people we love the most.
1: And I do think that a a good deal of it is that it's frustrating for us um, because we want to fix things.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And with little ones, we don't even know what the hurt is about. Mm -hmm. And so it's virtually impossible to fix. And then when we think we know and it doesn't fix it, it's like, okay, what is wrong with you, child? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm giving you everything that I know to give you. Uh, And it's hard. And and I do think that we carry that.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, we learn very, very quickly uh, what emotions we're allowed to communicate and allowed not to communicate and what makes other people feel uncomfortable. And a lot of it is this kind of hurt stuff. And I think there's something particular to um, kind of Midwest nice culture where we really don't ask that kind of question uh, because we, we think it's burdensome um, and nosy. And also we're just deeply uncomfortable <laughs> with other hurts. So it's it kind of culminates in this really interesting way.
1: yeah and one of the things that i think we do is as uncomfortable as we are as approaching another who we perceive for one reason or another to be hurting um we don't hesitate quite as much about sharing that with other people
0: Uh uh-huh yes we sure do we sure do we see that in unique ways in church culture
1: oh yeah I slid that in there gently. You
0: did. You did. It is often framed as a prayer request. Um, And sometimes, you know, it it is passive aggressive. Uh, Sometimes it's the only way people really know how to communicate that sort of thing. Um, It's, you know, the thought of having a direct communication channel has never occurred or been in existence. And so I don't think it's always poorly intentioned. But it is interesting when folks, yeah, ask for prayer requests on someone else's behalf or really use kind of to us frame, you know, it in terms of a prayer request when they could just be coming to us and say, hey, I have a concern you might want to think about pastorally, like as someone's pastor, even that would be kind of an easier entryway. Like, I don't know how to deal with this. I'm not equipped, but I thought I'd bring this to your attention in some capacity. Um, I would appreciate that.
1: Yeah, people are very uncomfortable if they bring things to staff. For instance, say, can you put this on the prayer chain? And we say, do you have permission from this person to put it on the prayer chain? It's like, what do you mean permission? We're 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 giving this person over to God, of mm-hmm. course. And and that's um, that's really not it. There they're, most of us at one time or another want to be deeply private with our hurt, and it's nobody's story to tell but our own.
0: Mm-hmm. And that gets hard when we try to figure out how to do life together because we have this question where does it hurt and uh people will then like you're saying will make assumptions about uh the question for next week what do you need (laughs) then they make assumptions about what that might be and will uh kind of use prayer as really a means of communication um at best and kind of at worst to kind of falsify uh, some sort of self-importance in a particular way and it's it's hard to figure out how do we how do we deal with the where does it hurt without also um, denying the agency of the folks that are hurting, which you talked about yesterday. It's hard to figure out how to do, and just sometimes you have to sit helplessly and let someone figure out what they want to communicate.
1: Yeah. So we have this. We had this text manner. So the, the the series we've been doing uh, offered two possibilities uh, for texts and um I thought using both of them was way too long. So we had the Hannah text about Hannah's barrenness and her jerky husband. Um
0: and jerky father in law.
1: And and jerky father in law. Um well yeah. The father in law was more of a buffoon. It, I I I got the sense that he was he was dopey but likable.
0: <laughs> I mean I mean maybe. I think after yeah, I could I could get there. But, like, he, he knew she hadn't had any kids, and she was in there crying. And he called her drunk.
1: I don't yeah, know. Well, it was the mumbling to herself that, that uh, anyway, we we could, <laughs> let's go back to the original Hebrew Our, to decide. Okay, well, you <laughs> can that be an Eli mumbling. Stan,
0: and I'll say he's a jerk, and that's fine. We can, you know, reasonable minds can differ. And, and,
1: and in any case, she, she sat there feeling awful and hungry and um, clearly in pain, and would have been lovely for someone to come alongside her mm-hmm. should she have wanted that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the other text was uh, uh, around the woman with a flow of blood and no, it was about, was that it was a yep. Jairus daughter.
0: It, they were kind of weirdly combined Okay. in the, yeah. Cause it was Mark, right? Yeah. So in Mark, those stories are slammed yeah, together right. yeah, almost they are, as like, they are. yeah, they're conflated. Yeah. But,
1: but again, we had, in that case, we have two other stories about female um, medical needs mm-hmm. uh, and, and, in, and in all cases as the, the male pastor of the team I'm being careful about, about how I presume what it feels like because all I know what it feels like is to be a partner in a relationship where we had fertility problems and where we had miscarriage Uh, And I know what that feels like from my vantage point, but I was not carrying. And, um, you know, I I certainly had the fertility issues. And, you know, I understood some of that, but not to the... I I could not get around these stories Mm -hmm. from the perspective of of the woman involved. And so I tried to broaden the, the story for Hannah to represent broader humanity and Mm -hmm. um um, that that at one time or another we all of us find ourselves sitting on the on the floor in the temple um, trying to figure out what our pain is
0: i think that's a really good model for folks who sometimes there are a lot of churches that only have male leaders and will only have male leaders And we'll relegate this text to being particular to women's issues and when they have a special woman Sunday, you know, or whatever. (laughs) So I think using realizing that there is some universality, even in this very specific text, is a helpful model for all of us. So it's not just coded like, oh, here we go again, another scripture about a woman. Yeah. (laughs) As if that's like, (laughs) oh, but rather, yeah, we can all see ourselves in Hannah. Some of us. Um, can see ha- ourselves and Hannah in this very particular and specific kind of pain. Frankly, a lot of us can. But then all of us have been humans that have cried at the temple and have had someone, you know, maybe even a religious leader, kind of like, oh, what are you up to? This is weird. You know, yeah. you're, what are you doing, drunkard?
1: <laughs> and then they'll go in peace. Yeah, I love all the places in scripture where where, where emotional pain is, is uh, written off as drunkenness. <laughs> yeah. Pain.
0: Well yeah, it actually makes me think about the ways, you know, folks used to self medicate and still presently do when we're in spaces of pain.
1: Different series. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, you don't want to start that series right here, right well, now. Sure, let's
1: go. Right. I'm up for it. Up for it.
0: Yeah, so an interesting question. And you, you talked a little bit about um, your personal life and, and really a lot of your wife Lisa's story and then a little bit about, you know, your renewal leave. Um but it struck me that you didn't specifically say, like, this is where it hurt for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I wasn't sure, you know, we're, we're careful as pastors to consider what of ourselves we give yeah. to others, right? Because then it becomes, you know, uh, yeah, if people, for better or for worse, feel a lot of entitlement to our lives. Um, and so I thought it was really brave to share any of it. And you kind of made a joke about it. How it's like? Well, it's better to just say it once than answer everyone's individual question.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, and yeah, joke but true. I mean, yeah. uh, it's like, um, so, yeah. I made a strategic decision to to tell what I was going to say. Wrecked, and and at one level, it was wrecked. But it mm-hmm. was eight eight weeks of renewal leave, and the four first four were. Were um, seriously altered because of my in-laws' uh, health issues and in in, in, a, in old age, um, and uh, and then the second four because of my of my own um, health issues that that developed while camping, um, and yeah, I I stopped short. It was long enough. <laughs> I mean, really, it, it was long enough. I stopped short of um, talking about my pain in that except to say you know going to the er and 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 they said where does it hurt um but the the sense of devastation and and mm. i don't say that lightly the sense of devastation that expectations that had developed in me and outside of me about what this renewal leave was going to look like that hurt more than anything
0: yeah yeah, I think too. Um, you know, you haven't, you have not taken a renewal leave. You really, um, you derive a lot of meaning from your work. I, I dare say, you like it. <laughs> well, I used to. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> Before I showed up on the scene and made your podcast to talk about no, it. No, I,
1: I. <laughs> yeah, I. It most of the time doesn't feel like work.
0: So it I think sometimes the congregation, thankfully this congregation, it, I have experienced you all as incredibly supportive um in a in a way that a lot of congregations aren't but for your clergy to leave to go on a renewal leave there is some like, you know, even if it's not coming from the con- congregation, there is some expectation of what this time away would be in our support of you. And for you to not have that, I would imagine not only your own, you know, it's just you're carrying a lot, you know, with you in that time. And then for folks to literally like the second you're back, are like, how, what, was it amazing? And it's like, no, it kind of sucked. (laughs) Yeah.
1: yeah. (laughs) No, amazing was not the word that came to mind. Yeah. Um. You know, it
0: was more than a vacation, right? There there is some other some spiritual kind of connection attached to it. And there was a lot, a lot more to it that I'm not sure people really thought of or realized because they were just, you know, they were, they were happy for you.
2: They're like, yeah, well
1: that, and you know, for some people, they've been around long enough to realize that, that they're invested in Mm -hmm. this leave. I mean, I go away for eight weeks. That's, that's a financial investment. Um, And there's a a sense that uh, this is, this is gifted time. Um, And so they've got, reasonable expectation to um to have a sense that that what i did was meaningful at least to me Mm -hmm. and ultimately would come back to uh my being in a better space returning and ready to ready to up the game in ministry for however long i have now
0: yeah yeah
1: that sounded like i was dying that's not true
0: Yeah, I was gonna say, I, we, to my we, knowledge, we, we do know how long you have. It's not a, it's not a touch well. I know, I couldn't, I couldn't do the
1: math that fast. seven months.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, at least you don't have a good countdown. Yeah, so that's good. <laughs> but yeah, there's there's more to it in terms of, uh, I don't know, and and like like almost all of us do. We we can be a lot harder on our ourselves or our expectations than, than others might be too. So that's just a lot. I'm very happy yeah. you're back. It would have sucked for you to have to take leave, like, you know, to take leave also for whatever was going, if something also yes, occurred with that your heart, been, right? Yeah. So that would have probably happened anyway. Um, but still, there's never, there's never a great time, especially not in the woods in Wisconsin at 1.15 yeah. in the morning.
1: Well, and that's part of what I, you know, part of why I led with it is that this, my story, Hannah's story, um... Uh, Jaris's daughter story it it's all of us at one mm-hmm. time or another I mean there's none of us that have that have not made plans and have and had those altered um, by virtue of our own medical situation or emotional mental situation or somebody else's that that, that are close to us um, so I didn't think that was a bad a bad lead because there's, oh, there's no. a universality yeah. a universality around that.
0: Well, yeah, and I, I think it's also helpful not only to, for you to share your story. I think the congregation appreciates when they can get to know us uh, personally. And, again, like I said, that's a delicate balance yeah. because um, we still have, like, you know, we can't just lay it all out on the Yeah, <laughs> on so, the so I, I
1: got to tell it the way I wanted to tell it, yeah. and I got to stop it when I wanted to stop it.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. It but didn't
1: we- keep people from asking <laughs> query give me that minute was, by minute no, Yeah, that were somewhat less appropriate than where I wanted to go, but, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but it is it is helpful to at least know and to have spaces where you feel like you're, the people leading you can be real and authentic about the human experience. Um, you know, granted, no one needs every nitty gritty detail. Yeah. Um, <laughs>
2: <laughs> or, apparently some don't really, really want them
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, but I you know I think that was it was helpful and helped us get to a place to think about and consider spaces of hurt and how to how to even name them that's that's what I've kind of learned is that we rate crappy experiences as if who, ha- who has the right to grieve and for how long who has the right to be hurt, <laughs> and for how long do they have that? And we kind of make internal judgments about what that looks like, and that's yeah. just not the human experience. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: yeah. And you'll definitely be going going into that this week.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, this, since you you know I mentioned before, we're talking about uh, what do you need, um, which really builds a lot off of where does it hurt because you yeah. have to you have to be able to name that and. I'm guessing you feel this way. I don't know, Barry, but as a culture and a society, we do we do a pretty good job of immediate like disaster relief, both in the disaster relief sense but also within our own lives when there's something that has gone on that's tragic. When there's tragedy or trauma, we are really good about like the next day bringing a casserole. When there's a hurricane, we're really good about sending the Red Cross and the Tide laundry truck immediately. Right, but in the in the aftermath of what that looks like, no one's there, and we don't always know how to rebuild infrastructure or to sit with someone during that. Um, or and you know, there's a huge cultural pressure also to just like, okay, like life goes on.
1: Get on with it, yeah.
0: Move, you know, go move on with it, and we have that reflected in church a lot too. And that people will kind of often say, I come to church to be happy as if church is your antidepressant in some capacity. (laughs) Um, And I get that. I do. Because there is, like, there are some of those elements where you can get, experience oxytocin or dopamine or that sort of thing, some serotonin. But that's also not the purpose, the overall purpose of church, A. And B, we really do need to create ritual around grief and how to let go and how to grieve um and the church has a beautiful you know like we we have that built in it's just people kind of shy away from it
1: sure because we culturally value uh the rapidity of saying i'm okay yeah it's like it says something virtuous about how fast i can turn it around and say i'm okay Mm -hmm. and they say what do you need and we get to say i need nothing
0: I can't think of anything.
1: Yeah. Um, and that, those are weird. I mean, I, I mean, to say them like this and, and, and reflect on them, those are both weird things for us to value. Because even if we say I'm okay really fast, it, it cannot be true. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sense that we need nothing sort of puts us in that place where we are an island unto ourselves, and that's not true. Mm-hmm. Um So I think one of the things church could could do far more effectively, and I think this series is is part of that, uh, is helping people to give permission to uh, articulate minimally within ourselves. Where are we and what do we need?
0: Yeah. We value, we idolize uh, strength to the detriment of humanity. Um, And that, like that kind of, because of all of the things you're saying, kind of like, I'm okay, I don't need anything. They're like, oh, they're so strong. As if that is, you know, like the best thing you can be is strong, meaning you don't need anyone. You know, it's the opposite of weak as if having emotions is somehow weak. And all of these things that are like, no, that's part of being a person. You know, it's part of being a human is to experience emotions and to grieve, A great loss, or a job, or any sort of transition—all sorts of things—and we don't even use that language well, you know, around around things we might need to grieve or what that looks like. It just, especially in Christian culture, other other religious cultures um, have better examples of how to do this, what this looks like, and kind of society or community kind of stopping and marking time with someone. And we don't, you're like, you've got like three days, wait a while to do a celebrational life. And then it's like, okay, we're done and we're done. Like clean, clean up the stuff and take it to goodwill.
1: Yeah. It it seems, it seems like one of a counterpart to that is when we see somebody in distress or if, if somebody should articulate to us what they need, we as Christians often think that's a trigger for us to do something, to be the answer mm. to that need. And mm. it may be that's not for us to do at all. Mm-hmm. It may be for something, someone else to do. Um, but we have this, we have these big hearts <clears throat> that often resentfully go in and, and do something. Um, and it's the easiest thing is when somebody articulates a material need. Oh, good, I could do that. Mm-hmm. Thank God I don't have to sit here and just be present. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> what could be worse than sitting with a grieving person? Yeah, it's, it's weird. It's weird space. You know, and everyone that's been there knows it. And we professionally sit with people within that um, in, in hospital rooms and in people's homes where they just are like, okay, like, what do I do now? you know, what do I do? I lost my job. Like, what do I do? You know, my kids transitioning and I'm happy for them, but like I had, I had their future laid out and now I have to deal with that. That's not theirs to deal with. And there's just, you know, there's just grief in all of that, that we pretend doesn't exist and pretend doesn't happen. Something you and I talked about a little bit, and I was curious to hear more about from you as, um, as people who professionally lead others through grief, do you consistently have your own kind of ritual to take care of your own grieving needs? Does it depend on the situation? What does that look like for you
1: yeah it it I do not have like a a special box that I pull out <clears throat> to fulfill my my grieving needs. Uh, it varies a lot with the situation um, you know we just d- lost a um, a dear valued member of the congregation and um, and friend,
0: um, yeah, like Sarah was a close personal friend to you and to Lisa. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Um, so that that work, that personal work, happened alongside of of very public work, but it it now continues
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, because things that I. Needed to shelf while we were getting the details done. Plus, I was gone. I mean, yeah. uh, Sarah died right before I left.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and while you were on renewal leave, but before your big part of your trip, so like right, you were, right, right, yeah. Right.
1: I was actually on leave. You're correct.
0: Yeah, but it didn't feel. Yeah. You know, it didn't feel. It like didn't feel because... like it because
1: I because I was grounded. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> because of
1: the Lisa's family situation. Yeah, you're right. You you know my life better than I do. Um, <laughs> That's scary. <laughs> so so yeah. Um, but how about you? What, what about your?
0: Yeah. I, so I, I do, I do tend to have kind of similar um, rituals, and I, and I had to learn this after one of my students died at Wesley, died by suicide. That was a really, that was really, really hard for me, um, as someone again who, who I was really close with this particular student, um, and like had a personal connection to all of that, and but then also had to lead a community through grieving a very tragic death by suicide. And I, I realized like, oh, I have cut myself off emotionally from even accessing this grief. I didn't, you know, and I don't think it was intentional. Um, I'm not that organized internally, <laughs> but I knew I just had to get through that part. And I had to get to a point where, um, you know, for her, her middle name was Rose. And so um, something I did later was that I I got some roses and I took the petals and I just thought of memories and kind of sprinkled those. And I'll often light when I think about someone. I'll often light a candle and I'll just think about them. I do that with my family. Um, I have a lot of family pictures around now that um, now that every one of my grandparents have died. Um, I, I think about them a lot and see them in spaces and will like light a candle and think of that person. I think it, I do that on birthdays. Um, I also think of special things uh, tied to that individual. So like my my husband's grandfather, John, who was just a tremendous person and uh, welcomed me into their family. He loved these awful whiskey sours. They're horrible. It was like the cheapest like lemonade mix you could get. And then he would buy the cheapest beer. I think it was Old Milwaukee. (laughs) and then the cheapest whiskey and this man would blend them up with ice and like serve it to you like it was you know the finest cocktail and so every once in a while um you know we'll we'll remember him with that particular drink because it was like his family thing and we have a few other things like that where we just take the time to kind of commemorate um and I try to do that with my kids too so they can see that so they know that um you know, there, there are ways that we can do this that aren't just the funeral, although that's a really important step with all that kind of grief. But, you know, you don't have a funeral when you lose a job. You know, you don't. Yeah, yeah so, there's
1: all kinds of levels, levels of grief.
0: Yeah, so figuring out kind of other rituals and other instances is helpful, too. I've written things on paper and burned them, you know, thrown stones into creeks, yeah. that sort of stuff. But usually I have to do something physical and something that transmutes something, right, that will that'll take chalk off a rock or, um, we'll light something literally on fire for whatever reason, you know, throwing petals into the wind. I I need to do something tactile that helps me process.
1: Yeah. Mine tends to be writing and, uh, tends to be poetry, um, or things that are intimately related to the, to the individual in, Mm -hmm. in memory, um, like the whiskey sours, (laughs) (laughs)
0: They are awful, and yet we all drink them with a smile. <laughs> if you want the recipe, I will not give it to you because that's how bad they are. <laughs> use
1: your use your imagination at yeah, home. Yeah, look yeah. Look
0: up look up a better one. Um, but I think it is important for folks to consider that.
1: Wait, um, he made a whiskey sour with all Milwaukee beer
0: and whiskey that's and disgusting. lemonade.
1: That's, dis- that's just I'm telling that's you, just wrong.
0: <laughs> I'm listen. <laughs> listen uh he was he was so charming and delightful you didn't even care right so that's that welcome was to
1: our show cocktail <laughs> reviews
0: at any rate uh barry and i will mix them up we'll try them later maybe we'll record a podcast after him. <laughs> but i i would i would offer to you all who are listening to think through um or to know that it's available to you to do something like this we tend to think or feel like it's silly Um, But anyone who's been grieving kind of knows it creeps up in weird places and weird ways. It's not, it's not a linear process. Um, And you, you can, can do something like particularly about it or have some agency in how you choose to grieve or have some sort of ritual attached to it. And Barry and I can help you.
1: Yeah. We're, we're getting a little bit ahead of the week uh, because some of this is, is around what do you need? So I would, Mm -hmm. you know, um, suggest Going a little bit deep into what's hurting in you and, um, <coughs> <laughs> which is a drag I mean going yeah. going deep into what hurting it, what is hurting is a drag, and we tend to be dishonest with ourselves and not wanting to take the time that it really takes to to put a finger on it as, a, as it were, um, because our initial instincts about what what is hurting may not at all be what's really where what the pain really is
0: and i I think too. Um... To your point, not only will we not be honest with ourselves about what's hurting, back to my point about kind of discounting. You know, sometimes people will go through the trauma Olympics with who has had the most trauma, but we often do that with ourselves to discount our own. You know, I can't tell you how many times someone's been like, well, but at least this didn't happen. And it's like, oh, okay, I hear that (laughs) mechanism, but like that doesn't take away from what you experienced. And coming out of a global pandemic where millions of people died, you know, I, I, I know that we're all just going through our life and we're doing the best we can, but we can't act as if that has no effect on who we are and hasn't changed how we relate to one another in society, let alone kind of all of these, you know, as humans, we're learning to adapt to media that br- brings us war to our faces where we don't, ha- we don't have an immediate response and sometimes we're so, we're really flippant and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll post about it, but it's like, here's this whole other sphere. We, we react before we even consider where in our body we feel this information and if we need to be.
1: Yeah. And the situation with, uh, with Israel, Palestine right now is just crippling so many people because you don't know where to go because it's not a binary. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's not, this is the clearly ev- evil, body. Um, uh, and so there's very little conversation that's authentic, certainly not helpful. Um, so go into those places of, of hurt. Confession is connected there Yeah. in our Christian tradition. Well, yeah, and, and you, br- of-
0: you bring up a good point and that what I see people posting is about who is the worst, who is the most evil in the situation, Um, and it's not that I necessarily disagree with them, but it would, you're right in that it would do us well to think through, you know, can I name my hurt in this? You know, as, as, as a bystander who just is receiving this information online or from friends or family or anyone connected, you know, it, sometimes people will discount that too. Like, well, I'm not really connected to it. Well, if you saw images of war... And act like that does not impact you as a person, like it does. So more self-reflection, I think, is to like what is, where does it hurt, what is, what is mine to do and to be in the situation, as opposed to like, who, who can I condemn? This is awful. Who can I condemn? Which is a really, really human response. I think we all understand that response very well. And it's
1: seductive, because what it gets us it gets to do is keep us at arm's length.
0: Yeah, we don't have to. Internalize or, or go through any of the, the stuff we have going on about yeah. the situation. It's hard.
1: It's hard. It's where it hurts.
0: Yeah. Well. So don't make a grief ritual. <laughs> Think about it a little, but don't do it. Well, you. <laughs> y'all y'all do
1: what you need to do.
0: <laughs> per per Barry's suggestion. Just wanted to
1: pull us back to the hurting because we all want to get through the hurting quickly.
0: Good points excellent points let's ruminate this week on uh on oh, where it oh, hurts hurt. everybody hurts we didn't do that song we should have probably just, copyright issues did. yeah where this is gonna get flagged <laughs> it'd have to be in tune enough to be recognized
1: <laughs> we're gonna auto-tune that
0: great please do well, y'all, you've already gotten a glimpse into next week, and isn't it delightful that Barry and I are back together? That's at the right, Pastor.
1: and you've been—you've gotten a glimpse into the minds of the pastors.
0: We will see you next time.